Hello, everybody. Welcome to Pet Talks, also known as the Pure Empathy Podcast. I'm Maritza. And I'm Shamina. Welcome, everybody. If this is your first time joining us, we are super excited that you're here. Shamina and I are two licensed therapists working to break down the stigma about mental health, as well as promoting mental and emotional health and wellness. We're super glad to have you listening, and we would love to have you follow along on our platforms. I'll have Shamina tell you about those. So if you want to learn more about our practice or interested in more content or other social media related things, uh, check us out on Facebook. Our handle is Pure Empathy LLC. Um, head over to our website, which is pureempathyllc.com and follow us on Instagram. Our handle on Instagram is pure.empathy.llc. We post all kinds of practice related updates, any social media updates, podcast updates, all things related to mental health on all of those platforms. So check us out. Absolutely. Thanks, Shamina. So please follow along with us. It'll add some positivity in your feed. Now, let's go ahead and jump into today's topic. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. I feel like it's now that we're doing it like once a month, I'm like, it's been so long. (laughs) I know. It does feel like a really long time to me. And it's funny you say that. I was actually going to say um, thanks for everybody for your patience waiting on this episode. And I do hope this gap in time has given you a chance to catch up on any episodes, old episodes you may have missed or simply just sit a little bit longer with the content. One of the things that we've been really looking at is the depth or the heaviness, if you will, of some of our content. And I do know that even though this is no replacement for therapy, of course, we're still bringing up some pretty heavy therapeutic topics that even listening to the podcast, like we've acknowledged can bring up triggers or is stuff that, you know, it can just take a while to kind of process and unpack some of the things that we present and talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope that today's um, episode will also kind of give you guys some things to sit back and reflect on. And this will be released right before or right after Valentine's Day. So we are talking about love, relationships, attachment styles, all of the fun things that the month of February brings for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to touch a little bit on all of this and of course, follow along on our social media accounts so that you can um, see what post Shamina is going to be releasing because we're trying to line up all our content. So it's all supportive of one another. So the posts are going to be looking the same about relationships and attachment and things like that. So yeah. yeah. But yeah, let's talk about um, attachment. So I think um, when I think about attachment styles, of course, I think a lot about my marriage and family therapy training. We talk a lot about this in systems work, especially when we're working with couples. And I'm always looking at that because the type of couples therapy I practice is called EFT, which is emotionally focused therapy. So my documentation, my note actually asks which attachment style each partner in the pairing has. And Mm. that's one of the things that we're identifying pretty right away from the first session is which attachment style are you presenting? And there's a really lengthy assessments for that too, to determine it. But in general, you can pretty much tease that out even verbally from people. So sometimes I will do the official assessment and sometimes it's very obvious and I can just ask a few questions and, and kind of find that out. But with the attachment styles, I'm sure this is something a lot of you have heard about. I feel like it's getting a little more popular and I've 
seen it, of course, on a lot of like the other therapist pages and things like that. But I think it's very popular in um, just social media and people are becoming more aware of attachment styles. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like pop culture, you know, people are talking mm-hmm. about it a little bit more just like with the the five love languages, that's becoming mm. even more talked about and normalized with what that looks like. And so, you know, I'll even have clients who come to me and they're like, I think my attachment style is this. And I'm like, okay, great. Like there is some foundational knowledge here. Like, let's read this book. Let's, let's go yeah. into this. And so I, I think it's becoming so much more normalized just within the modern community of what is an attachment style and how does this impact my relationships? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I love the love languages as well. And that's a super simple one. I feel like the love languages is really easily accessible to pretty much anybody who can either Google it or get the actual book because there is a book on the love languages that you can buy. But that's a really good one. And maybe we'll start there actually, even though I, I didn't have the love languages front of mind. I didn't either. Um, truth be, <laughs> yeah, truth be told, I was like, I was like, truth be told, I didn't actually think about it, but, but I do tend to to um, use it because at some point when I'm, especially when I'm doing couples therapy, they'll kind of tell me, um, I don't really assess for it, but they'll tend to tell me. So I believe you're right. in that this one is very like well-known. A lot of people are looking at that before they even come into therapy, like they're doing their own um, self-help research, if you will. And they're coming across the love languages, which I love because my, um, so my last preference in the love languages is my partner's first. Mm. (laughs) It would be. (laughs) So that was really fun for us to figure out because it kind of made the light bulb go off of like, aha, okay. And it's interesting because whatever your love language preference is, is the thing that you'll kind of naturally do to show love to others. And I find a lot of times in couples, if the other person's love language, if that's not one of their top preferences, it's some, it falls flat basically. And so the way I talk about it is like their love cup isn't actually getting full, even though you will tell me, but I'm showing so much love, right? And maybe one person has I guess, let me give an example. Um, Maybe one person has physical touch as their love language. And so maybe they're very like, they make sure to um, hug their partner, even just kind of put their hand on their shoulder or their elbow or their leg if they're sitting near each other. And they do these things to show, I love you by touching them. But the other person's love language is something completely different, maybe acts of service or how about gift giving, right? So say they're a gift giver and this person doesn't think to gift give at all. It's not really a thing. It happens at the holidays and birthdays, but that's it. They may feel like, oh, my love cup is so empty. And the partner is like, I'm doing all this, you know, but I, but I touch her elbow every day, you know, and that's not necessarily conveying because the other person that doesn't really register as, oh, that fills up my love cup. That's a way to show love and affection. Mm -hmm. Um, So those preferences really do matter because they can be um, not the same and both partners are equally right. And one is saying, I'm giving out all the love I can give. What more do you want from me? And the other's like, I don't feel love coming from you. And both of those stories are equally true. Yeah. And I I talk with my clients a lot is that, you know, we give the type of love that is our love language, you know, so it's important to know what your partner's is because then you're giving them their version of love and communicating that to them. Um, 
but backtracking for a second, for anybody who does not know the mm-hmm. five love languages, they are acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, and gift giving. So as we kind of like reference those, those are the five love languages. Mm-hmm. But um, I hear that all the time, or it can even, you know, with the example that you gave of like physical touch versus gift giving, it may have the opposite effect for the person mm-hmm. receiving that of, you know, I feel like my partner's just invading my space all the time. I don't understand, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be touched this much and it makes me feel uncomfortable. And that can create more disconnection than connection, mm-hmm. which is leaving the other partner feeling like, what's happening? I'm trying so hard to do these things to this person that I care about. And I'm just getting Mm -hmm. met with like resistance or rejection. Mm -hmm. And I see this a lot in couples where one, uh, at least one of the partners has gone through abuse as well, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody has gone through physical or sexual abuse, they may not really like physical touch outside of a very specific container. And so physical touch as a love language, like you said, could feel very overwhelming. It could be very triggering. And so they could be getting the opposite effect. So they could be trying to show love by touching and then they're triggering their partner and their tr- their partner may be responding from that place with maybe a fight or flight, withdrawing from them, or maybe even snapping and yelling. Yeah. So which yeah. creates just more disconnection, which is important to know what your partner's love language is and how do you it incorporate is. that with your own? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we could like go on so many examples of like how these play out, right? But for those of you that are interested and you haven't already stumbled across the love languages, feel free to do a quick search. There's some really free, easy um, quizzes online that you can find out your love language. Or like I said, you can even get the book, The Five Love Languages. Um, Any of those resources would be really good for you to just kind of start the journey of getting self-awareness about your own and that you might be really overdoing that for a partner who has a different love language. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, let's also talk about the attachment style. So glad that you point out the love languages. So we'll talk about the four different attachment styles. So these are going to be secure. There is a secure attachment style. So that's basically the way it sounds, right? For somebody to have a pretty secure foundation and attachment to other people. Most people, (laughs) I feel like, don't necessarily fall in this category. You can grow to fall in it. Therapy is a wonderful tool for getting there. Some people do this in couples therapy. They're able to heal some of those earlier attachment wounds and form a better bond with their current partner. But also individual therapy is really great for this too, especially if you have a history of early childhood abuse or other things that would have probably exaggerated whichever attachment style you have uh, because of that. Uh, Is it unsecure? Is that the right word? Unsecure? Insecure. Insecure. Thank you. I'm like, I'm like non-secure. What am I looking for? (laughs) But um, basically you did not have a secure base or a foundation from which to attach to an early childhood caregiver. Okay. So that's where um, therapy is very helpful to work through any challenges or or wounds that you have there. But the other types of attachment styles are going to be the anxious attachment style. The way that I was trained to kind of think about this attachment style is this is the one, this is the partner who's going to up the ante. So they're going to say, I'll make you respond to me. 
right? So that's the, usually in a relationship, that's the person who's more pursuing the other partner during arguments and things like this. So they're saying like, respond to me, they might elevate or escalate, become very distressed and look very anxious in general. And that's what the anxious attachment style really looks like in a relationship. Then there's also the avoidant style. So anxious and avoidant partners tend to get together, big surprise. <laughs> we need some duality in our relationships. So we do different sides of the coin. But the avoidant partner, the way I learned it in my training was the one that is like, cool your jets, right? And their response is naturally, I will care less. So they give off an air of uncaring. Now, let me clarify, that's not necessarily true. Okay. It's not that the avoidant partner doesn't care. It's that's the way they keep themselves safe. Okay. So this all goes back to like basic level, like safety security needs and all the attachment styles say is this is how you respond when your secure attachment is threatened, right? Mm -hmm. And it could be a perceived threat. It doesn't have to be genuine. So you could just be feeling jealous and it will trigger whatever this response is, even though that's maybe unfounded. There's nothing going on. It's like, you know, that's from your history and it just got triggered today. So it doesn't have to be a real threat. We're even talking perceived threats. And then we also have one other type, which is the fearful attachment style. Now, the fearful attachment style, we usually think in terms of very, a lot of instability in the person that has the fearful attachment style. The thing that's going on for them is come here, don't touch. So it's very push-pull, come here, go away. Um, come closer, don't touch me, you know? And so that push and pull can be a lot for either anxious or avoidant partners because it feels very un unstable as far as like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what you need because they don't necessarily present a clear picture of the need. Whereas the other two, although they can be very unhealthy, the need is still pretty clear. If I'm anxious, I need you to come closer. If I'm avoidant, I need you to go away, <laughs> okay? And that's just pretty obvious in their responses to that threatened attachment with the fearful it's a bit of both and that can really obviously cause a lot of distress for both partners and the the fearful is also being called like anxious avoidant you know kind of like a hyphen in between that it's also been called disorganized so those are other terms within the mental health mm -hmm. community that you may hear that um and I, I want to go back to the secure attachment really quick because I give a good example of like what that even looks like in childhood to my clients is, you know, the secure attachment is like this gold standard that everybody wants to achieve. That's what you're working towards. And you can have different attachment styles with your family versus with your significant other or partner. So you may have an insecure attachment with your parents, but you may have a secure attachment with your romantic partner. And that also changes, um, that can also change depending on, you know, the type of partner that you're with. But with a secure attachment, it's kind of like you're on a playground, you're a little kid, you're on a playground, or you see these kids on a playground. And the secure attachment is the one who checks in with their parents. They're like, hey, is everything good? We're good. Okay, cool. And then they go off all independent and they go play. They have a great time. And then they come back and they check. 
and then they can go back and they don't have a care in the world. Whereas like the anxious child may constantly be looking back at mom and dad or needing them to come to them or screaming or trying to get their attention a little bit more. And the avoidant one may be not playing at all or just kind of keeping to themselves. And um, so it, it looks a little different. But I like to describe like the child piece because everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I can I can identify with that kind of thing. Yeah. Or I remember being that way. Right. Yeah. Like I remember feeling that like anxious when I was young, if I turned around and I didn't see my mom on the bench, you know, but maybe she just uh, went over to the water fountain and got a drink. And that was very quickly relieved for you. There's still that foundation that says like, when this is threatened, I become anxious or when this is threatened, I become avoidant you know, and those are things that really play out for a lot of us. So it's in, and I say, um, I often talk with people about attachment and then also we end up talking about codependence. I have a lot of clients that will come in and they'll say, I think I'm codependent. And I tend to go, yeah, probably, you know, like, (laughs) like truthfully, aren't we all is kind of my thing. And then I go, are you telling me that you have that level of codependence where it's really unhealthy or it's what we would consider toxic, right? Um, Meaning you're, you're very in a, in a bad cycle for yourself, because I tend to look at the attachment theory, which to give you guys that are um, the information junkies, some background, when we're talking about attachment theory, we're talking about John Bowlby. Okay. John Bowlby was the one who created the attachment theory and really started to look into these um, four attachment styles in his research and see how that was affecting us in our continued life into adulthood, right? As we pair bond off and and get a couple up, get married, whatever it is that you do. But he was the one that was really looking at these and saying, this is a very normal thing that all infant humans do. We find an attachment caregiver and we know I need this person to survive, right? Because um, infant humans, we can't do near as much as our other mammal baby counterparts, unfortunately. We need a lot of care. So basically, deep down in our, our early setting, we know, again, going back to the fight or flight, if I'm alone here and a lion pops out of the grass, it's going to eat me. That's game over. And we're we're in our psychology aware of that. So I go, hey, here's a parental role uh, caregiver. That's the person I'm going to attach to. And in their absence, I feel a way about that right? I'm either going to become anxious, avoidant, or have this both kind of response, the anxious avoidant or feel fearful, excuse me, fearful attachment response. And so I tell people like, it is normal in a sense then to be codependent. We are social creatures and we know we need other people. So codependency in the way that we talk about it very loosely, like in popular culture is again, pretty normal. It's normal to feel scared if your partner's not there and you're going through something really tough. Um, It's normal to feel Uh, certain emotions when you're separated from the people you love. That's just normal and natural. You miss them. You know that you need them, even if it is simply at this point, just for support um, and not basic human needs, but you're aware that you need people in your life. And there is a level of codependence, of course, like I said, that becomes unhealthy. So just to kind of clarify, if you're like, oh, I think I'm codependent or, oh, I think I have this attachment style. Those aren't bad things. 
that's just information so that you really know what are the things that you'll do when you do get scared in relationships? What are the things that you'll do when things don't feel secure in your life? How will you respond? And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So I just wanted to, I guess, do the normalization thing, the validation thing that we always do to say, as you're listening to this, and we're talking about love languages, we're talking about attachment styles, keep in mind learning this stuff about yourself. It's not a stigmatizing thing. This is a normalizing thing and going as an attached human, when my attachments are threatened, this is what happens to me. So knowing that gives me the ability to make change and choice where I need to. And there's a fine line between a healthy level of codependence and toxicity in a codependent relationship or, you know, feeling or being insecurely attached in your relationship versus it turning into something more or getting stuck in like these cycles or patterns with your partner. And that's where, you know, people may come into couples counseling is because they have to learn how to communicate differently because they are getting activated and their partner is getting activated and they don't know how to co-regulate. They don't know how to communicate in those moments. And so what a lot of Maritza does in the couples counseling is having more of a corrective experience of like, okay, great. You just got activated. How do you communicate that to your partner in a different way? How can your partner understand what's going on for you? Because we all, we all have this, you know, I, Mm -hmm. it's very rare. I tell my clients all the time. I'm like, I don't, I don't know these securely attached people. They're, they're (laughs) not my people that I, I see or hang out with. And, um, I'd like to know, you know, <laughs> what they're doing to get there, but we all have these moments where we get triggered, we get activated or our own stuff is impacting our relationship with our partner or it's triggering our partner and we we typically do that, you know, we kind of couple up with people who our stuff will trigger them, their stuff will trigger us, just mm-hmm. like the anxious and the avoidant get together. Um, you know, each each piece of the dynamic flows into the other and it it can be really easy to get stuck in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, and I'm glad you said that stuck in that because that takes me to talking about um, the cycle, the pursuer distancer cycle that exists in a lot of relationships. So again, let me preface by saying, if I describe this and you're like, oh my gosh, that's me and my partner, that's okay. This is not an unbreakable cycle for most people. Let me say for most people, there are situations where the cycle can show up in also an abuse cycle in a relationship. And that's that deal breaker situation, right? That's get yourself to safety. That is not okay. Right. So that's different. And that is not what we're talking about today. We do have an old episode where we did touch base on domestic violence and domestic abuse. So feel free to go back if, if you haven't heard that, because we do talk a bit about it there. Um, but to say we're talking about a relationship that's otherwise healthy, but it does have this dynamic. And this dynamic is just, it's not great. You don't like it. It's not lethal for either partner, but it's, it's not fun either. And it's one of those things that often brings couples that would be felt otherwise very connected and healthy into therapy, which is we're in this pursuer distance or pattern. One partner is constantly pursuing the other and the other is just running away. Now, I don't mean actual running away, more metaphorically, okay? Um, and what I talk to you when I'm starting out with couples, I usually use my rubber band analogy, which is the two of you, um, as you've decided to be a couple, imagine yourselves inside of a rubber band. Now you want to maintain this perfect amount of tension, 
for the rubber band. And when someone pursues and steps in too close, the distancer will feel like, oh, the rubber band's going to slip off. I need to back up. Okay. So they'll back up and then you'll kind of do this dance endlessly around the room. Now on the same token, if the distancer backs up first, so it really doesn't matter who starts this cycle, but if the distancer backs up, that becomes very uncomfortable. The rubber band starts to pinch into the pursuer and they're like, oh God, you've gone way too far. I got to go run across the room <laughs> to um, make this more comfortable for both of us. Right. You must feel that pain in you, you know? And so you do this dance dance over and over. And I often say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It doesn't matter. It, it really, truly doesn't matter because one, it'll be the distancer. The next time it'll be the pursuer who starts it. it it's irrelevant. What's most important to look at is the, the dance that the partners get into. And I apologize, I'm bringing up dance. This is a term that Sue Johnson uses who created EFT, the couples therapy um, that I've been trained in. So she refers to it as, as a dance or a tango when couples are in this dynamic. And so we've got to get that dance to be a really healthy dance where it's connective and nobody's stepping on anybody's toes, right? Um, but that's what happens. It's like you're inside this rubber band. So each partner is absolutely just responding to what's happening between the two of you um, in the best way that they think is going to solve this problem of the rubber band either falling off or the rubber band being uncomfortably tight. And so you kind of chase each other all around the room doing this and it's very exhausting. And the, so what that kind of looks like behaviorally. So with a withdrawer or a distancer, um, and I, I raise my hand because I am one of those people that looks more like shutting down. Maybe you're not talking during the conversation. Maybe you're being triggered and you feel as though you can't talk. Maybe you have to separate yourself, go into a different room. Um, you know, there, there are different kind of behavioral pieces that go into play. Mm -hmm. And then with a pursuer, it may be, you know, it could be in their mind. It's like, I'm, I'm not being heard. Maybe I need to be louder. So it could be like screaming or it could be their behavior, mm -hmm. Um, their tone of voice raises, maybe they follow you from room to room. If you're needing to get your space, they don't give it to you. So they, they keep coming at you. They keep talking um, when you just want the conversation to end as a withdrawer. And so that's kind of what, mm -hmm. when Marantz is talking about the dance, like that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It's like one person may be shutting down and the other person is continues to kind of pursue and go after them in that way. Um, and that's the most common cycle we see with couples is like the withdrawer pursuer. We can also see a withdrawer withdrawer. Those are a lot more rare and um, fun to work with. And then also <laughs> like the two pursuers. So, but for most yeah. people, it's a withdrawer pursuer, you know, just kind of like dynamic and cycle that comes mm -hmm. up. Yeah. And your attachment style can change over time. So this isn't something that's super stagnant. Um, so if you say you're in a particular relationship and that's the dynamic, you might switch that role. So you could be like, oh, in my last relationship, I felt like I was on the, uh, um, the pursuer side. And in this one, I felt like I'm withdrawing, you know, so that that is possible. Um, however, the stance of the pursuer and the distancer, and obviously we're also, we're interchanging distancer and withdrawer. So I apologize for that, but both words are actually accurate. Um, <laughs> so, and I know we're kind of going back and forth. So just to point that out, we are interchanging those two, but um, now I forgot where I was going to clarify it and lost my train of thought. This is not uncommon for those of you who aren't familiar with me. Um, <laughs> where was I going? 
Where's that going with that? Um, hmm. I really don't recall. <laughs> It'll come back to you. <laughs> it will. Um, but yeah, but when we're talking about the withdrawal or the distance, or I'm really glad, Shamita, that you gave those, like, here's a behavior that you might see, right? Because I often do hear from people on that side of the connection, that side of the dance, if you will, they'll say to me, but like, I don't want to say something that I'll later regret when I'm feeling angry or triggered or just really upset and in a disagreement in the relationship. And to that, I go, oh, I, I can create a lot of space for that. That's actually a really good and healthy thing. And then I'll ask, when do you go back to the partner and bring it back up? right? When do you go back to them to finish the conversation? And then I get some glazed over looks and I go, okay, all right. So you did a healthy thing to maybe take space, get grounded, center yourself so that you're not like a, a screaming monster in this scenario. And I can super appreciate that. Great coping skills. However, what I know puts you in that distance or stance is that you didn't revisit it right? You didn't come back. And what happens for the distancer, especially if this is a person who has an anxious attachment style in that gap space, they're not soothing and feeling better. They're becoming more anxious. So while the withdrawer is gone going, Hey, I'm doing the right thing. I don't want to get in a bigger fight. If they're not returning to this regularly and consistently and saying, hey, I'm grounded now, let's go ahead and finish that conversation through to closure. If they're not initiating that on that side of the coin, the anxious of uh, the anxious attachment style person is going to get more and more and more anxious. So that longer distance for them is confirming their attachment fears. And so then they start to chase you down. They're like, hey, you didn't come back to me. You didn't talk to me about this. I'm still really mad, blah, blah, blah. And the other person's like, whoa, this is a lot of emotion. And the cycle starts over. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, a lot of, you know, the, when you withdraw or if you pursue, um, mm -hmm. It, it's kind of like a self-preservation piece. Like the pursuer is like panic, panic, panic. I can feel them pulling away. I don't know what to do. I need to go after this. I don't want to lose this. Whereas the withdrawer is like, I have to, this is how I protect the relationship is by shutting down, distancing myself. And so the, the want and the need for most healthy relationships is the same. The behavior just looks different. You're both afraid of losing the other person, losing the connection, having this rupture that you can't come back from. And that's where a lot of, you know, the work in couples counseling comes into play is being able to like fizzle that down of like, you're both just worried about losing the other person. And so how do we communicate that in healthier ways? How do we start to change that cycle? Because then both of those behaviors become the problem. If the other person shuts down, yes, it is helping the relationship, but they're not coming back and revisiting. So then that creates more of the anxiety with the anxious person. They're coming at their partner. They're coming at their partner because they care so much that they don't want to lose them. And then inadvertently it's causing, you know, the cycle to continue again. And so it, it that that's why we call it a dance is because it is such a symbiotic dynamic that it flows so well together and it's so easy to get trapped in it in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely difficult. So I want to like, um, uh 
give voice to the avoidant attachment people out there to say that um, when they're doing this, a lot of times the anxiously attached partner will think that they don't care because again, I said they have that air of like, I'll care less. And on a subconscious place, they are actually doing that. That message is guiding them in a way, but that's not like I said, always the truth. Now that may be, and that's just somebody who's checked out of a relationship. So that that's an option as well. But given that this person really wants to be in this relationship, and this is just how they respond to threats to their attachment, that person is usually an equal or sometimes even more distress than the anxious partner who's showing it. So just because it feels that way does not mean it actually is that way. Oftentimes the avoidant partner, like Shamina is saying, cares very much. And this is what they believe will help. That's why they're doing it in the exact same way that the anxious partner is doing exactly what they believe will help. But the pattern gets very rigid and it starts to go into back and forth, back and forth, tip for tat, tip for tat. Uh, you're walking away from me. I can't handle this right now. Give me a minute. No, I'm not giving you a minute. You do this every time. You know, like you, we need to talk about it now. I can't talk about it right now. I don't want to have a fight with you. Oh, we're already in a fight. <laughs> you might as well say it, you know, and then boom, boom, boom. Um, and for anybody who maybe feels that on a deep level, my apologies for that acting out anything triggering. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it was therapy or acting school apparently, but <laughs> so, role play, role play combines both. Yeah, it's fine. exactly. I do say I do, I do embody like role plays really well. I'm, I'm good at like pulling in a role play occasionally and going like, here, I can act out what this felt like. Um, so yeah, but, but you know, you obviously get it, how it can go back and forth sort of endlessly. And that's where I say it can get very exhausting, right? This, this pursuer distance or pattern because both partners walk away with with unmet needs, right? And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the attachment stuff is those unmet needs. And speaking of John Bowlby, who really did the research for the attachment um, attachment theory and really did a lot of work there, he was quoted as saying, we are only as needy as our unmet needs. Hmm. And when we're able in a relationship to hold that sort of empathy or compassion for our partner, we can often see it because we've probably been with them for a while. We know them really well. You probably know about their history and at least some of their old wounds, right? So if you're able to, for just a moment, stay grounded and not get pulled into that cycle, you can often see that these are just simply unmet needs. And you, because you have this different stance, may not know how to meet those needs for your partner. And that's okay. But what I'm getting at is like, when you see it as unmet needs, you can see the partners withdraw or their, you know, pursuit as, okay, this person just really, really wants to feel connected with me. And they're not feeling that right now. And that's scaring them a lot. But it, it takes that level of awareness from each partner because it, yes. it can be that is how to break the cycle that is how to start to change things is that your partner has to be receptive to understanding what's going on with you kind of offering that empathy giving you that space but also kind of challenging the dynamic because it's very easy for people to sit in the hurt 
you're rejecting me. You don't care about me. You won't stop talking. You can't ever give me space. You know, all we do is fight. It's very easy to stay in that place as opposed to coming at it from an empathic perspective of they are so afraid of losing me or my partner is shutting down because they may not feel safe right now. And I, I have to respect that and give them the, the place to regulate and then revisit. How do we come at this in a calmer approach? What would be helpful for, for both people? And that takes mm-hmm. so much work on both sides. And it's not mm-hmm. just, oh, well, the withdrawer has to, you know, engage again and, and be more communicative mm-hmm. or the pursuer needs to soften up. And it it takes both. both parties to be able to get mm-hmm. to a healthier and secure attachment place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and it's very much um, an equally challenging road, right? That's what I try to remind people of. Like you, you're not living in the other perspective, but imagine that it's just as tough as yours. And if you can just believe me that that's true for a little bit, it does give you some room to have some compassion again for what looks like really hurtful behaviors, right? It's like, oh, you're maybe for the pursuer, you're pulling away from me and that hurts or for the distance, or it's like, Hey, I just needed five minutes. And you, you really couldn't give me that. Like, why do we have to talk about it immediately all the time? Right. Um, and, and again, both sides can be very valid depending on what the situation is. Right. But knowing like the other person is really acting out, um, from these mostly unconscious patterns. I mean, these are really probably way predate the relationship in most scenarios. Um, this is just the pattern of behaviors and whatever's happened in the relationship between you two was what kicked off the cycle, you know, but again, I like to let people know this cycle is not unbreakable you can absolutely get to a place where you're doing a beautiful tango with your partner. And it feels very, very comfortable to even have conflict, which a lot of people look at me like, what? <laughs> you, you're saying I'm going to be comfortable in conflict. And I go, I'm just saying you can, <laughs> you got to do some work to get there. I'm not going to say like, it's easy, but all I'm getting at is, is it gets to the point where the person who does the withdrawing says, you know what, this feels, uh, too distressing for me, for me to not become escalated. I don't want to say anything that I would regret. I'd like X amount of time to cool off. And then I want to come back and we can talk more about this. Right. And what that does is that tells the pursuer, the person who's feeling more anxious, most likely I'm not abandoning you. I want to be with you. And the best way that I can do that is to take a breather and come back. And they haven't done the, well, I'm doing the thing I need, but I didn't show you that I am still attached to you while I do it. Right. And so when they start to extend that olive branch, then the pursuer starts to, like you said, soften and go like, oh, okay. And if they're doing their work and their coping skills, they go, I can do five minutes. I'm not going to freak out in five minutes. It's just five minutes. I'm going to take a walk around the block myself. That'll be good. And I know my partner's still there. They haven't gone anywhere. They're not abandoning me. Like this is okay. And there's going to be more times when that pursuer is feeling more comfortable to give space. And then because the situation isn't so heated all the time, the withdrawer, the distancer is going to feel more comfortable to be there and talk about what's going on without feeling like I'm going to get triggered. I'm going to have to go, you know, withdraw. Yeah. 
And you can even get to a place where, you know, your, your partner can kind of gently acknowledge that too, of like, if you're, Mm -hmm. if you notice your partner's withdrawing, like, Hey, I, I just saw you shut down. Like what, what's happening. Do you need a second Mm -hmm. and vice versa of like, you know, I, your tone is starting to escalate and I'm feeling activated. I think we just need to kind of take a second and, you know, regulate Mm -hmm. and then let's continue with this and, and being able to have those types of conversations without the defensiveness um, or without blaming or shaming one another, or judging, but just, hey, something shifted right here for us. And this is what we need to break. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, like, let's, let's do it this way so that we both get those needs met. Right. Because again, it's very difficult, like kind of going back to what we were talking about with the love languages, it can be difficult to feel like your love cup is empty, right? That it's running dry. And imagine that you're already feeling depleted. You're not feeling very connected to your partner. And then there is some, a conflict that comes up and either one of you goes into this pursuer distance or pattern. It's going to antagonize everything that was already going on for you where you weren't feeling connected to begin with. These, like we usually call them corrective experiences when you kind of can stay there and both people can stay in whatever maybe challenging emotion is going on. Those reinforce that you are still connected even when you disagree. Even when things feel tough, you can still have a very strong bond. Absolutely. And it's learning communication skills, you know, using I statements, not saying, well, you're doing this or you made me feel that way. And so recognizing your own attachment response and how that may impact your partner, but also how do you learn to communicate in a different way instead of from a place of hurt or um, being able to kind of filter away the fluff. You know, I tell my clients, when you argue with your partner, it's not about who did the dishes. It's very rarely the fact that the dishes are not done, but it's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but we're not getting to what's underneath the water. And so how do we find out like what's underneath the water? Well, I felt disrespected because I've been working all day. And when I came home, I saw you didn't do the dishes that hurt me. That's way different than what the hell have you been doing all day? You're, you're just home and not doing the dishes. Those are two totally different things. And so it's learning how to communicate that piece from a vulnerable perspective, sitting with those feelings and having that trust with your partner that they can also hold space for themselves and you. Yeah, absolutely. I use the dishes as my example all the time because I feel like that's just the easy, that's the tangible, right? We can point to it and say the dishes were not done objectively. And so it makes it very easy to argue about. But what's underneath that is always something different, right? It's it's like, hey, I, like you said, I've been working all day and it felt disrespectful or it felt hurtful because I've been talking to you about how busy I am or maybe how tired I've been lately. And then I come home and I see the dishes. Right. Um, and so chances are maybe the partner is busy and just didn't get to it, like, or something happened, you know, given this isn't a repeat pattern, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a good chance that it was just a very harmless thing and it wasn't intended in that way, but that's how it hit the attachment wound of, ouch, this person maybe doesn't care about me. Yeah. So yeah. we talked a lot, a lot on yeah, you know, yeah. attachment styles, <laughs> like what that looks like. And so if you follow our social medias this, this month, because we're going to be talking a little bit more about attachment styles, just kind of 
um, relationship stuff as it relates to like the month of February, Valentine's Day, all of that kind of things. But also if you've been listening and some of this stuff really resonates with you or you want to be able to seek professional help of like, how do I break this cycle or how do I get out of this mm-hmm. dance with my partner? You know, reach out to a local therapist, look on psychology today. Um, if we have, if you're local and we have our schedules open, we have clinicians who are, you know, willing to either work on an individual and potentially um, couple basis to, you know, kind of help gain a little more insight and working on some of these dynamics with you. Yeah. And I know that we wanted to um, give a quick shout out to, to those people this time of the month that are not in relationships. So these attachment styles and things like that, that we're talking about, these relate to all relationships, not simply intimate relationships. So your attachment wounds could get flared up in any connection, basically. Um, But I particularly wanted to kind of just put out there to the people who are in a situation where they're divorced around this time of year and they may or may not be dating. Um, They may be in a lot of different um, circumstances or feel very differently about, you know, the Valentine's day holiday that we have coming up. So we did want to just kind of speak to that and say, if you're in a situation where you're grieving the loss of a connection and you're reviewing that and you're hearing this information again, do your best not to be critical of yourself in this. If you heard us say something that sounds like you and you're like, oh, I did do that and that was not healthy, that's just information, okay? That is just information so that you can learn like what this looks like for you. When does it get triggered? So again, we're really doing this to break down the stigma and build awareness. Um, so if you're somebody who's in a review place, and you're looking back at past relationships or something like that right now, all I'm asking is just try your best to be kind to yourself when you maybe notice um, some points in this that are hard to look at. Definitely. And we'll be kind of touching on some of this other stuff that we may not have gotten to today um, in our social media throughout the rest of Mm -hmm. the month of just kind of normalizing that piece you know, what being single looks like in today's society, whether it's your millennial age or, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, Gen whatever Gen you are, um, then, (laughs) you know, what some of that stuff kind of looks like. um, We'll be going over that in, in our socials for the rest of the month too. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I think with, uh, with dating the way it does with online, I'm not sure it could be generation specific. Maybe some generations have an easier time with it. Um, but I know dating has changed with our technology. And so that's been a big, um, thing for people and it definitely does trigger feelings of insecurity and attachment wounds for people often. Yeah, absolutely. So you are not alone in that fight. Um, if no. the month of February feels <laughs> triggering for you, or, you know, you're just kind of down on yourself during this month and, um, just know that you're not alone. Absolutely. Yeah. And we will definitely see you next month for another podcast episode. So again, thanks to everybody for listening. We do hope this and our other episodes are super helpful and we are super grateful to have you following along. We'll talk to you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.